coming Saturday, there is a women's ministry kickoff, and you can be a part of that. And I was reminded of one more right before the start of the service. So here you go. Like, we're the whole bulletin this morning, aren't we? Uh, there is a child dedication. We, uh, we do child dedications um, throughout the year, and one of them is coming up on the 23rd uh, next Sunday. So if you have not registered and you'd like to do a family dedication, a prayer time over your child in front of the church, you can learn more about that on the website as well. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Father, we are honored to be in your presence. You are good. God, you are the source of everything good in our lives, and we are grateful to be here as a church family. And God, we seek to hear from you. So as we study your word, I pray that you would speak clearly to our hearts. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start this morning explaining why we're calling the series in Ephesians the mystery of Christ. If you've already read through the book of Ephesians or any of the Apostle Paul's writings, Paul wrote this letter to this church in Ephesus. You'll notice that he uses this word mystery repeatedly to describe the gospel, meaning this plan that God had to restore all that sin had broken in the world is a mystery. It's been this mystery that's been hidden for ages, but has now been revealed in what we would call the New Testament. It's now been revealed, this mystery plan of God's has been revealed in the life in the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. So the mystery has been revealed to those who are Christians. And now it's a matter of learning more about the depth of that message and then how to live it out. And that's what Ephesians does. First half of Ephesians is going to give us the details around what it means to be a Christian. And then it's going to be followed up with how do you practically live this out? What does that look like in the life of the Christian. And so we are calling the series mystery. But as with many things, things that you study, things that you experience, one wise approach is to begin with the end in mind. And so before we jump into the book of Ephesians, we're going to start out studying a message that God, that Jesus had for this church. And from that message, we're going to be warned about some things that we need to keep in the front of our mind and our hearts as we begin to study this letter for the rest of the year together as a church family. So I want to start off with this warning. Think of it this way. This is a picture of the Queen Mary. It's one of the largest and most famous cruise ships in the world. It's now retired and permanently moored in Long Beach, California. But during her sailing days, she made 1,001, 1,001 transatlantic crossings. The Queen Mary is 181 feet tall, 1,019 feet long. She weighs 81,237 tons, like the new rock we put out there last week, right? including a 45-ton anchor. And the entire cruise ship, this massive boat, is controlled by a rudder. And that rudder is controlled by a small device called a trim tab. That trim tab, that small device, is responsible for navigating the direction of this entire ship. And much like the Queen Mary having the trim tab, we too have this trim tab, this spiritual warning that's going to come in the text today. Not big. It's in, found in one verse in the Bible. The theme is found in other places, but in one verse spoken to this church, we're given this trim tab, this warning to pay attention to something before we jump into the details, to guard something, to be on top of something, because if we're not, it has the potential to spiritually shipwreck our lives. And so this trim tab of sorts is what we're going to study here. Now, because this series is in Ephesians, and not in the book of Revelation. We don't have a lot of time to go into the background in Revelation, but I do want to give you a little bit. You'll see on a map here that the, the 
message of Revelation was written to seven churches in what we would call modern-day Turkey. You can see that with the red line outlining uh, these seven churches. The apostle John is in his 90s. He's the last living apostle when he writes this message called Revelation to these seven churches. He's been exiled to that little island, Patmos, with the X on it on the map. He's been sent there because Rome didn't want to kill him because he had a big following and they didn't want to deal with the mess of that. And so they wanted to exile him and put him on this island so the people would just forget about him and he could just die. Well, it's on this island that Jesus visits him and gives him this vision, a vision that we call Revelation. Revelation. A, Revelation. There's no S. Revelation. Sorry. It's just, I'm picky. All right? But he gives him this Revelation. And he dictates it to these seven churches, and the rest of the message fills in the meat of this message that would then go to all of the churches, and ultimately to everyone. Now, the first church that would have received this, because of a couple reasons, one, it's the first place the mail carrier from Patmos would have arrived is Ephesus. But it's also the first church that would have received it because it's, one, the most influential city in the world at the time. And two, it is by far the most influential church of the seven churches that this is sent to. And so it's very strategic how this plays out. Now, John's going to write this message uh, to the angels of the churches. All we need to know about is this. We know that it's written to the church itself. So the message is given to the angel of the church in whatever city. We know that it's intended for the whole church because the instructions are plural. They're not singular. Um, and that's an important detail to keep in mind. This is for the whole churches. And he ends each one of these messages with this. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Okay, so this is a message given to the angel that's over the church. But the message is for the church itself. So keep those things in mind as we jump in. Paul's going to, or, or John's going to dictate this message from Jesus to the church in Ephesus. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, to set us up, let me give you a little bit of background. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. So we have to know a little bit about Ephesus to understand why this message is so important for them. A couple things about the city in Ephesus. One, it is the largest financial center of the known world at the time. It's a financial epicenter, if you will. All money kind of flowed through Ephesus. It was the most populated seaport on the western part of what we call Turkey, of Asia Minor in the day, which meant all kinds of people came to this city, not just one group of people. It wasn't just Romans. It was all over the world. All these people would come to Ephesus because that's where you would trade money, trade goods. It was the financial epicenter of the world at the time, very multicultural, highly populated with all kinds of different people. Ephesus was also the cultural epicenter, not just the financial epicenter. It was host to the Ionian Games, the Pan-Ionian Games, which is second only to the Olympic Games that were in Athens, which meant if you wanted to be in the cultural no, you wanted to be culturally relevant, you'd spend time in Ephesus. This was an important city to be a part of. It's an important city to be able to say that you've spent time in. Cultural epicenter. It was not just a populated city. It was a very popular city. Lots of people, lots of activity, alive, thriving. It's the place that you want it to be. It's also a political epicenter. The emperor uh, at, of Rome would dictate to certain cities this privilege if it was an influential city. And the privilege was you get to build a statue of me. <laughs> kind of ridiculous. That's the way they did it. So for a city to get that honor was pretty politically important. 
Ephesus had that honor four times. So this was a political epicenter of the known world at the time as well. Last thing, it's a religious epicenter as well. In Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's a temple built to the uh, goddess, the fertility goddess, Diana. And it, it was this massive temple for this goddess who was worshipped. She was worshipped by way of sexual activity. I'm not even going to put a picture up of the statue that represents it because it's, even that's just not, it's not important. Know this, that in order to worship at this temple where Diana was worshipped, you had to participate in sexual activity. See, the, the Greeks would, the Romans would call her, or the Greeks would call her Artemis, the Romans would call her Diana. Everybody showed up to participate in sexual immorality as a part of worship. And so people were coming all over the place, like, that's the religion I want to be a part of. And so they had this huge, giant temple built to her. Here's a description of the temple. The platform that held it was 100,000 square feet. That's two football fields. Two football fields. It had stone columns, over 100 stone columns made of marble, each 55 feet high. This place was the center of worship in the known world. So it's in this financial, political, cultural, and religious hotspot that one of the most influential churches in the history of Christianity is birthed. The church in Ephesus was one of the most influential churches in the history of Christianity. It's, in, it's a fascinating place. The church is birthed by when the Apostle Paul with his friends Priscilla and Aquila spend some time there, and this church gets up and going in this city. And the way that Ephesus is described in your New Testament, it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul makes it a point to come back to Ephesus. In fact, he spends more time there than he did anywhere else that we know of. Two and a half plus years spent in this city because he understood this is a strategic city. When you have a city that is that influential on those different platforms, finances, politics, religion, uh, just cultural hotspot, you want to make sure you invest in that city because if the church gets up and thriving, it's going to influence the whole world. And so Paul comes in and he wants to spend time in this city. And guess what happens? The church begins to thrive. You can read about this in Acts 19 and 20. In fact, I think more than any other time in church history, the gospel transformed the economy of Ephesus unlike any other city. I mean, it just turned the economy upside down on its head. One of the main ways you'd make money in Ephesus was you would create these little idols, these little mini statues of Diana or uh, of, of this goddess, and you would sell them. And when people, uh, Artemis or Diana, so you have these statues and they would sell them. But when people became Christians, guess what they stopped buying? These idols. And as a result, the economy begins to shift. People don't want to spend their money on immorality. There's a giant book burning that takes place. There's all kinds of transformation taking place. And so a riot breaks out because some people aren't happy that this gospel message that Paul is talking about is stealing their money. And so they get upset. There's this riot. Paul gets driven out of town. And so Paul then sends his good buddy, Timothy, his son in the faith, to come and pastor this church. Paul would write two letters to Timothy while he's pastoring the church in this influential city. These two letters we know as 1st and 2nd Timothy. Church history tells us, though, that Timothy is eventually killed by the Romans. So when Timothy is killed, then John, the apostle John, comes and he begins to pastor the church in Ephesus. And this is where he would have wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, from this city, from the ministry that he was doing in this city. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. And ultimately, revelation as well. John didn't travel alone. Do you remember what Jesus asked John to do when he was dying on the cross? Take care of her. Take care of Mary. So Mary would have made her home in Ephesus too. 
You think about church staff. I love our church staff. But think about the level of church staff Ephesus experienced. You got the Apostle Paul. You got Priscilla and Aquila. You got this young dynamic preacher named Apollos. You got this great young pastor named Timothy who comes in. You got the Apostle John and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Look, I love our Christmas Eve services, but can you imagine? Like, hey, Mary, is that how it went down? Like, am I saying that right? Like, are you kidding me? That's incredible. This church staff was unbelievable. Dynamic, the influence that the church had in this place. It was unbelievable. And this is the place where John writes this message to, this influential church, this influential city. And he says, this message is coming from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. A couple things. Every reference in the book of Revelation points back to something in the Old Testament. It's, it's all imagery that they would have understood. Here's what holding the seven stars and walking among the seven lampstands represents. It's a, it's a word in the Bible that we call sovereignty. It means he's all-knowing and all-powerful. He holds the stars. He's in control. He has the power. He walks among the seven lampstands. These are the churches. And so what he's saying is this. I don't just stand, like he said in Revelation 1, among the lampstands. I'm actually walking among them is what he says to Ephesus. Why would he say that to Ephesus? That he walks among the seven golden lampstands is because of this. That no matter how culturally relevant, politically relevant, religiously relevant, financially relevant... No matter how big and happening this city is and how influential this church is, nothing is hidden from Jesus. Nothing. There's no corner you can hide in. There's no shadow that you can escape from him in. He walks among his churches. He knows every single detail. Even in the midst of the greatest sin city that ever existed, no sin is hidden from his eye. And he says this is the church that he's going to write this message to. So just know this is what he's saying to Ephesus. The one in whom nothing is hidden from has this to say to you. Revelation chapter 2, verse 2. He starts out this way. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but they're not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. So he starts out with this pretty great compliment to them. He says, I know your deeds. I know what you've done. Nothing's hidden from me. I know your hard work. I know that you're not lazy. I know that when it comes to the work of the gospel, you're putting the effort into this. I know that you've persevered, that things have not always been easy for you, and you've endured hardship. And then later on, he'll say, you've not even grown weary from this. Think about this. Not only did they persevere through persecution and difficulty, it didn't even wear them out. That's a pretty incredible characteristic. You didn't even grow weary from the persecution. It didn't even phase you because your belief is so strong. And then he says this, you don't tolerate wicked men. See, the Ephesian church was dedicated to a doctrinal and theological purity. They put all the effort you needed to put into. They knew all the right answers. They studied God's word. They knew everything they needed to teach and be pure. Not only that, if somebody showed up and was teaching the wrong stuff, they could call it out. They could identify it. They weren't going to be duped. They weren't going to be tricked. They were on their guard. They were on their A game protecting the doctrine. On top of that, this church was very alive and active in their community. So the city of Ephesus recognized the church in Ephesus because they were that active in serving and being involved in the community. This church was incredibly healthy. And when Paul left this church, when you read about it in Acts 19 and 20, eventually Paul decides he has to keep going on these missionary journeys. And he has this meeting with the elders in Ephesus. And he, you can tell he weeps, they weep. 
emotional because he loved this church so much. And he gives them this warning when he leaves in Acts chapter 20. Here's what he says. Be on your guard, both for yourselves and for the flock. Savage wolves will come in among you, and they're going to speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So be on alert. Protect the doctrine because it will cause people to drift. And guess what? They did it. They listened. What an incredible testimony that all those years ago, Paul told us to watch out for these savage wolves that would come in among the church and try to teach false things. And we were aware of it and we protected it because we know, we know the Bible. Later on, John would write to them in 1 John verse 4, he would say this, test the spirits. And boy, did they. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 14, Timothy in his ministry in Ephesus would warn the elders, you need to guard the gospel. And guess what? They obeyed their pastor Timothy and they guarded the gospel. They knew the word of God front and back and they protected it with everything that they had. They did all of it and they did it well. This is the church that if experts showed up, they would say, this is the church you write books about. This is the church where you have to write leadership books about. This is the church that everybody should know about. And here's the thing, it wasn't just a social club. It wasn't just a place where people showed up and received. They were all giving. They were involved. They were maturing. They knew God's word. They were experiencing tremendous growth in the city. This is a church you would look at and you would say, is there anything wrong with this place? They got everything. They're doing it all right. Could anything possibly be wrong with this place? And then there's the trim tab. That small little truth found in one single verse that Jesus warns them about. And he says, despite all of this good, Despite everything that you've accomplished and everything that you're doing, despite how healthy you look, you better be careful. Verse 4, yet, despite all of this, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. With all the good you're doing, he says, I have this against you. You forgot the love that you had for me at first. It's like a scorned lover. Like you do a lot of good things, but I feel like we're not connected anymore. I feel like I don't have your heart anymore. There's no intimacy with us. Like I feel like you do all these things and you have all this influence and you've made all this progress, but we're not connected at all. Throughout the Bible, you can hear God plead with his people this way. Everybody always concerned with what they have to do to get what they want to get. And God is like, I just wanted your heart. Like I just want to know you. We'll take care of all that other stuff, but, and that stuff's important. It's important what you do and the influence you have, but if you do all that and you lose, why, why can't I have your heart? And you hear God pleading with his people throughout the scriptures. One of my favorite examples is Jeremiah chapter two. Here's what God says to his people. I remember the devotion of your youth. Like I remember the love that you had for me. How as a bride, you loved me and you followed me. What fault did you find in me that you strayed so far from me? See, anybody knows this, that the love you had at first, that first love is vitally important to sustain health in a relationship. It is. And we're a forgetful people, aren't we? So what about the love you had at first? You do all these great things, but like, what about that love? What about that intimacy? What about the connection that we shared together? The first love is vitally important. I'll never forget the first time that I saw my wife. It was fall of 2004. We were on the, uh, she didn't see me, by the way. <laughs> we were on the campus of Florida Christian College. And uh, I saw her and it was like, I just was completely drawn in. I'd been warned about seeing her by some, somebody. He said, hey, she's off limits. I hadn't even seen her and he told me she was off limits. It's a kind of a funny story. I'm not going to tell it today, but 
It worked out real great, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> but I remember getting to talk to her in the spring of 2005 for the first time, really. We sat in a class together, Evidences, with Dr. Mike Chambers. I'll never forget the details. I began to get the courage enough to start writing her notes. And so I started writing her these notes. And I know you'll be very surprised by this, but I was pretty sarcastic. Um, I know it's hard to believe that. But I would write these notes, and I was pretty sarcastic with her, and I would slide her these notes. They weren't nice. I don't... But it, it worked. Uh, and she kept jabbing back and forth, and we'd write notes. Here, I, she still has every one of those notes. And I'm like, oh, don't show the kids. Like, don't pull those out. I remember counting down the minutes, and I'm not exaggerating, till I knew that she was ready so I could walk to her dorm and go on a walk around the campus. And if we went to the campus of Florida Christian College today, I could take you on the path we walked in the evenings. I couldn't get enough spending time with her. It was like tunnel vision. My friendships began to lose their significance. My vision my, for, for what I wanted to do, all of it seemed to be so focused. I just wanted to be around her. I remember the first summer where we were really getting serious and talking, she came up here to do an internship because she grew up here and I was down in Florida doing a, uh, I was working at a church plant. And I would pester her on the phone. She'll probably, if she's honest, she'd say, yeah, he called a lot. Because I just loved hearing her voice. And we would read scripture and pray and talk. I just couldn't wait to be around her. That, that first love. First love. Everything about her fascinated me. I remember in the November of 2001 getting baptized into Christ in a swimming pool in the backyard of someone's house. And I remember that first season so vividly, I was fascinated with God. I couldn't wrap my mind around all the details about what he had done for me, but I knew that I needed to be close to him. It was just this craving. I would describe it this way. I started reading the Bible and I had this insatiable appetite to keep reading. I just wanted to keep reading it. I just wanted to know more about him. I didn't understand everything I was reading, but I just knew I wanted to know about this God. And I remember being called into ministry and it being so vivid that this is what I need to do the rest of my life. I want to tell everybody about how good this God is. And I was just with a group of friends recently uh, over the holidays. And uh, I recalled because they played a song and I thought, man, that's interesting. Uh, David Crowder, before he was like David Crowder, was pretty unknown. Like he didn't, he, before he was well known. And he had produced this album and uh, somehow we had got a hold of it. And I had this CD. And the CDs are these things that held music on them. And you'd put them in a device and it would spin really fast and play your music for you. And I had a CD player by my bed. And I would not go to bed any night when I first became a Christian. Could not sleep unless I pressed play on this original album of his. And the words as he sang about Jesus would sit heavy on my mind and heart as I fell asleep every single night. This last week I was by myself driving and I listened to the whole album. First love. And that love that you had at first where you just could, it's tunnel vision. It's I just got to be around you. So what happens? I mean, we've experienced it. We've seen it, right? All kinds of different relationships. That first love, that desire where does it go? Begins to fade from time to time. Earl Palmer is an author, and he describes this issue, our trim tab issue, if you will. He calls it the Ephesus syndrome. You'll see this on the screen. Here's how he describes it. A man or a woman is first united with the Christian church because of having discovered and believed in Jesus Christ and his love. 
After a few years of being a Christian, that person becomes a leader in the church with very heavy responsibilities for the fellowship. But something happens along the way. That person, who because of giftedness and hard work, may now stand at the vortex of church politics and decision-making, experiences a subtle shift in the style of life. That person is adrift as a disciple and finds himself or herself motivated and nourished by the organization or by controversy or by ambition to hold power. The first love has been replaced while perhaps no one was aware of the replacement. The first love has been abandoned and in its place is the starchy, high cholesterol diet of activity and church work that will never nourish the human soul. And he makes this profound insight. The irony of the latter condition of the Ephesus syndrome is that the Christian becomes totally preoccupied, fascinated with themes and goals which would never have won him or her in the first place to have joined the church. Arguments over fine doctrinal points, distinctions of polity, exoteric giftedness, etc. How can it happen to us? It happens to marriages. It happens to human friendships. It happens to the life of discipleship. We lose sight of that first love. So what do we do? Well, Jesus doesn't just call them out. He tells them how to correct course. Look at how he describes it. Verse 5. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who overcomes or the one who is victorious. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. <clears throat> so he gives us three things to do. The NIV says, consider how far you've fallen. I like the translation, remember. <clears throat> remember from where you have fallen. Remember. We're called to be a remembering people. We talked about that last week. Throughout the pages of scripture, one of the most common commands from God to his people is to remember. And the first part of remedying, losing the first love, Jesus says, is to remember. Remember where you came from. Remember what it was like when you first fell in love. Some of us are so distracted. So distracted. It's hard for you to focus in a sermon for the length of time that I've preached today because we're so distracted as people. We need to put the screen down, turn the TV off. Focus long enough to open God's word, to sit back, to meditate, to try your best to remember when you first became a Christian. What was it like when Jesus and that gospel message captured your heart and your affection? Don't tell me about the doctrine and the theology. All of that's important. Tell me about what happened to your heart as it started to beat so fast when you realized that he saved you from the pit of hell. Remember. Same thing in your other relationships. Put the screen down, turn the TV off, and make eye contact enough to remember what it was like the first time your eyes connected to your spouse. Remember. It says, in addition to remembering, repent. Repentance literally means to turn the other direction. Very appropriate for our illustration of the trim tab. Shift direction, change course. Make that commitment. I like to say it this way. Own your stuff. Recognize in the process of your relationship with Jesus or in the process of your relationship and all the other human relationships that you experience that something went wrong and you played a part in that. Own it and repent of it. I know I did wrong. I know that I've been distracted. I know I haven't read your word. I know I haven't spent time praying. I know I haven't spent time in fellowship with other believers. I haven't prioritized these things in my life. I've put way more things. I have so many idols taking up space in my heart and that's my fault. I want to say I'm sorry. 
And I want to change course. I want to make a commitment to going in a different direction with my life. I want to repent of this. Then he says, in addition to repentance, redo. Remember, repent, redo. Redo the things that you did at first. Redo the things you did at first. Start writing sarcastic notes. Right? And go on walks. Reconnect. Listen, I listened to the whole album this week, David Crowder, simply because I just wanted to remember that feeling. I never wanted to lose sight of that feeling, that connection. Look, what we're going to do in Ephesians this year is really important. We're going to study the prayers of Paul, all kinds of doctrinal and theological truths. Some of you are really excited for it. I'm excited for it. But if we get into this and we don't pay attention to this warning, we're going to lose sight of it all. You understand when Jesus gave this warning, he said, if you don't change course, I will remove your lampstand from its place. You know what that means? That means your church will die. One verse, one little warning. You have abandoned your first love. If you don't get that one verse right, your church will die. Guess what? There's no church in Ephesus today. They didn't listen. So the question for us as we begin this study this year is this. Will we? Will we listen? Will we reconnect and remember? Will we repent when we have fallen away from that first love and do the things we did at first to let him capture our heart yet again? Will we forget our first love? Or will we remember, repent, and redo? Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for Jesus that the only way we love is because we were first loved by you. Would you help us to remember what that felt like, Father? When the message of the gospel captured our affection and stirred in our hearts a transformation that could come from no other source. Would you help us to be people that repent, that own our stuff, And give us the discipline through the power of your Holy Spirit inside of us to redo the things we did at first, to keep the fire of our affection for you going. And we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. In all my time preaching, one of my favorite things is to go from the sermon into communion. You know, you're like, hey, we're, we've, we've sang songs and we've heard from God's word and now we go into communion as a response to what we heard from God's word. Never have I thought it was more appropriate than it is this morning. Just struck me like, man, what? How important is it that we would go into communion a time set aside, distraction-free to remember than after hearing from what Jesus just said to us in his word? This is a time built into the schedule of your week for you to slow down enough to remember the affection that you feel for the sacrifice of Jesus as you hold those elements as a physical reminder. It gives you time built into your busy, distracted schedule to repent of being distracted in general. And it gives you that time to commit your heart to redoing the things you did at first to keep the fire in your heart alive for Jesus. So on that note, let's partake together.